I want to preach to you on the topic of discipleship. Now, when I speak of discipleship, I don't only mean the work that has to be accomplished in the heart of a new convert. Uh, Certainly, that is discipleship. But discipleship goes much much further than just the first few weeks or, or days or months or even years of your life. We find that the disciples of Jesus Christ were just that. They were disciples. They were disciples all through His earthly ministry. They were disciples after His earthly ministry. And uh, the work of discipleship in the heart and life of the believer is a perpetual work. Uh, We're not just His disciples until we graduate to become something better because there's nothing better to be than a disciple of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple means to follow. To be a disciple means to serve. To be a disciple means to have affection towards your master. And I believe that each and every one of us is called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me in Luke chapter number 9 and verse number 57. The Bible says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, open our eyes to your word. Father, open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand the teachings of your words, Lord, that they would apply to our hearts and lives. Lord, we know they do apply, but I pray that the Holy Ghost would apply them in a special and particular way. Father, teach us tonight from your word. Lord, I pray that if there's one amongst us that's lost, they'd come to know the Savior this evening. Lord, I pray that if there's some on the fence about serving you tonight, they'd get off the fence and get in the battle, Lord, and get in the race, and they'd start to serve you in a greater capacity. Lord, help us all at the end of this service to have been found to have done work with you and to be in your will, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you tonight, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we read in Luke chapter number 9, I believe there's some context that has to be understood uh, to really grasp what's taking place in these few verses. I'm not going to take the time and somebody say hallelujah right here to read all 56 verses uh, leading through this chapter. But let me give you just a few things that have taken place in Luke chapter number 9 because they're very, very important to understanding what is taking place in these few verses that we've read. It is a busy chapter. A lot is happening in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let me say that there's a lot of people that will serve when there's a lot going on, but there's not quite so many that will serve when it gets slow and gets difficult. I mean, there's a lot of people that will follow you uh, when you're pushing the car downhill, but you hit that uphill grade, you'll find they're few and far between that are willing to stick with you. And this is true in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, What predicates what takes place here is a lot of activity and a lot of excitement in the 
ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, at the very beginning of the chapter, in the first six verses, we find that our Lord sends the twelve out preaching. And they go, and the Bible says they preach the gospel, and they heal, they did miracles, and don't think for a moment that that was lost on the crowd that followed Jesus Christ. They had seen what God could do with a group of men that God had sent forth. Uh, they saw what God was capable of. They saw what God could do. We find that in, uh, in verses 7 through 9, uh, we find that Herod, uh, the rumor of Jesus Christ is spreading, and Herod begins to ask questions. Now, that's kind of a glamorous thing if you stop and think about it. I mean, it's one thing for the people right around you uh, to know who you are, but when you're starting to ring their bell up in the White House and in Washington, when they're starting to set up and take notice of the work that God is doing, Herod is beginning to notice what's taking place. Fame is beginning to spread concerning Jesus Christ. Verses 10 through 17 we're very familiar with because there we have the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, what a day that must have been. Uh, we speak of 5,000. That was just the men. Amen. They had their families too. It's been estimated there could have been upwards of as much as 50,000 people gathered this day. And our Lord, with just a few fishes and loaves of bread, began to break and to provide for them. Don't you know that must have spoken to the hearts and minds of these that were following Jesus. They said, hey, God's able to provide. God can do some things uh, for me. We find in verses 22 through 25 uh, that Jesus begins to talk about His rejection, His death, and His resurrection. Well, you know, you may say, well, that doesn't sound very appealing, preacher. But there is certainly a glamour to it and a beauty to it. And I believe that it would have been easy for them to have somewhat of a martyr's complex. Lord, wherever you go, and he said it later on, I'll go with you. Whatever you face, I'll go with you. So there's a lot going on. In verses 26 through 27, the Lord begins to talk about his coming to this earth in power and in glory. In verses 37 through 43, and there's some that we're skipping over uh, simply because they were not public things that took place. I'm interested in what could have influenced these disciples. Uh, that began to ask these things in verses 57 through 62. I'm interested in what was affecting them. But in verse 37 through 43, the disciples had just come off the Mount of Transfiguration, and here's a young boy that's uh, got a demon inside of him, a devil inside of him. And the disciples at the bottom of the hill, they had tried to help him. Uh, but Christ steps in and delivers this young man from this devil that's inside of him. No doubt that had a powerful impact. Uh, there in verses 46 through 48... Uh, they begin to ask uh, the Lord who will be the greatest. And they begin to argue and bicker. These Baptists, you know, because they began to argue and bicker back and forth. And they began to ask who's going to be the greatest. You know what our Lord's answer is? He takes a little child and sets him in front of him and says uh, that whosoever shall be the greatest shall have to become like a little child. Now... You say, preacher, why does that have any impact? Well, don't you know that must have been encouraging to these disciples walking by? Because they thought, hey, if a little child is esteemed great in the Savior's eyes, then maybe I can be something great in the Savior's eyes. And then in verse uh, number 49 through 50, we find uh, that John and James pray, or they ask the Lord that God would strike down some Samaritans because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, and our Lord rebukes them. But don't you know that it was whispered throughout the crowd, uh, those that followed Jesus Christ, they have the ability to perform great miracles. Now you say, preacher, why do you tell me all this? Because I'm trying to get you to understand that there was some false motivation in the requests of these men. Let me tell you something. We, we kind of go about this whole thing different than Jesus Christ did. You know it? 
I mean, when we want to get someone in church, we talk to them about how good it is and how wonderful it is and what a blessing it is. And I'm thankful the house, house of God is a blessing and a help. But when Christ was making disciples, when He was influencing men's lives, He did not talk about how easy it was because He didn't just want a bunch of professions. He talked about how difficult it was because He wanted people that were really in it for the right reasons. Discipleship is a difficult road and a difficult thing. It's not easy. Uh, I could sit here and for hours talk about all the things it'll mean in your life when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'll only name a few this evening. But let me give you a couple verses that I believe sum it up. Paul writing to the young pastor Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says to him. He exhorts him and he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Uh, that ought to be uh, emblazoned upon the mind's eye of every disciple, because that summarizes what it means to be a disciple. I, I want to just look tonight at a few things, and I, I just, if the Lord will help me this evening, I want to preach it in a way that will speak to hearts and encourage you, but I want to be honest with you about it too. I believe there's some things in our life that's hindering us from going all the way for Jesus Christ. I believe there is a prevalent attitude, and it's in my life like it's in your life, that is hindering us from really getting on fire for Jesus Christ. And could I give you a summary of it? We find it in the responses of two of these men. And I want you to notice them, these two little words. Look with me again in verse number 60. Christ had asked this man to follow him. Uh, verse number 59, excuse me. Look what the, the man says. But he said, Lord, suffer, and I want you to underscore these next two words, me first, to go and bury my father. We find this same thing echoed in verse number 61, uh, when another had said that he would follow him, but he said, let what? Me first. Go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. Let me tell you what the greatest hindrance is to us doing great things for Jesus Christ. Greatest hindrance is not a sin-sick world. This world's just as lost today as it's always been. The hindrance to us doing something great for God is not the devil. The devil's just as wicked today as he's always been. The great hindrance today uh, to us doing something for Jesus Christ is not the prevalence of sin in society. Because you go back and study ancient uh, cultures and sin has always been prevalent to one degree or another. What I'm saying is sin is the same as it's always been. The devil's the same as he's always been. God's as good as he's always been. Let me tell you the greatest hindrance to us doing something for Jesus Christ. You're looking at him. For me, you're looking at him. I am the greatest hindrance to me. You stand in front of that mirror every morning, or some of us do, some of us don't. Amen, that's evident. But when you look in that mirror every morning, you're looking at your own worst enemy when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. It's this attitude of me first. It's interesting that, that it's not denoted. They're not saying me only. They're saying me first. We don't have to say me only to stop the work of Jesus Christ in our life. We need only to say me first, and we can stop the work of Jesus Christ in our life. I fear it is paralyzing younger generations in service for God. It's not that we don't want to do something for God. It's just we want to do what's for us more. It's not that we don't want God to get some glory out of our life. It's just we want we, us to get glory first. 
It's not that we don't want people to get saved. It's just we, we want to do what's going to benefit us first. That's our chief concern. That's our chief ambition. We find three men in here, and I, I just want to say a few words about them. Three men that had the opportunity to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. Every Christian is called to be a disciple, but not every Christian is a disciple. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's just like how every, uh, every person that's been born again is saved, but not every one of them is a Christian. You say, well, what do you mean? Are you saying there's different... Let No, what I'm saying is this. Uh, you may be saved. I mean, saved as saved comes and may not live like a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to have upon you the attributes of Jesus Christ, to live in such a manner uh, that would imitate or replicate or uh, in some way uh, express to a lost and dying world the impact of Jesus Christ on your life. And it's just sad to say, but so many of us, uh, we say we're Christians, but we're not living like we're Christians. The same is true about a disciple, Brother Ralph. Just because a person's saved, that don't mean they're following Jesus Christ. Just because they're, they, they're saved, that don't mean they're necessarily living for Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone that has put themselves under the discipline and teaching of another person. Have we done that yet? To be a disciple means to have submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple means to have made Him chief and first in your life. Regardless of whether it's comfortable or convenient, regardless of whether it's popular uh, or uh, that it gives you power, what it means is to say, Lord, you're first in my life, not me first. You first. These three men, and there's some interesting things that are similar, Brother Ralph, and there's some things that are different. I want you to notice the first man. The first man comes and speaks to Jesus Christ. Two of these men volunteered themselves as disciples. One of them was not volunteer. He, he was called to be a disciple. And there's a reason for those differences, Brother Ralph. The first man comes to our Lord and he says, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now, shouldn't that be the attitude of every believer? I mean, just just follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, lead me on. I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. And there's probably not a person in this room that has not at one time or another said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere you want me to go. We've probably all said it. We probably all at one time or another meant it. But we find that our Lord says something that changes the dynamic of the conversation. Now, if it had been me, I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm carnal, amen, just like any good Baptist preacher. I mean, I'm carnal. If it had been me and somebody had come and said, Brother Toby, I'm going to follow you whithersoever you go, I would have probably said, well, follow me over to this mower and I'm going to let you mow my yard, amen. I wouldn't have said a thing to him. I would just said, all right, sounds good. But that's not what our Lord does. See, he's not interested in counting noses. He's interested in people that mean business for the cause of Christ. And so he looks at him and he says, Foxes have their holes, birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Let me say that this young man, and it dissuaded him, we assume, this man had a problem. He wanted to follow the Lord. But you see, Brother Ralph, he said, Lord, me first in the matter of comfort. Most of us, that's where we're dissuaded. If it's not comfortable, we don't want to do it. We all have a comfort zone. Amen? We, we all have, and I don't mean that pattern that most of us got either. I mean, we've all got an area of our life that we're comfortable to function within. But now, if you ask us to go beyond that, you're asking something that is more than what we're willing to allow. 
Let me tell you where this notion comes from. Now, I don't mean to be ugly, Brother Ralph, but it comes from selfishness and self-centeredness. It comes from selfishness because we're more concerned with the effect it'll have on us than we are the effect it'll have on Jesus Christ or the effect it'll have on others. And it comes from self-centeredness because we, we have somehow got the idea, Brother Ralph, that we belong to us and we get to run our own life. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. And let me say, I'm thankful for the country we live in. I'm thankful uh, for the liberty that we've got here. I, you know, I, I'm thankful for that. Uh, but we have allowed this political idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Somehow we have allowed that to affect our relationship with God in such a way where we could never fathom not having the government of our own life. It's foreign to us to believe anybody would have any rights to our life, Brother Ralph. It's foreign to us to believe, to, to such a degree, listen to me now, to such a degree that it is acceptable in society today to, to murder an unborn child so that the rights of the mother are not infringed. Bless her little heart. I mean, there's something wrong with that. But you know where that, that comes from self-centeredness, Brother Ralph? Because, see, we think our rights are the most important, and we think we're entitled to. Boy, we, that word entitlement's everywhere today, isn't it, Brother Ralph? We're entitled to something. But you have to understand, when you became a believer, uh, you were crucified, you were nailed to a cross, and as a dead man, you lost all your rights. And you belong to Jesus Christ. We don't mind serving God as long as it's not uncomfortable. We don't mind talking about the Lord as long as it's not uncomfortable. Let me say this. If you'll only talk to people about the Lord when it's comfortable, you're only going to talk to saved people about the Lord. And, and half of them you won't talk to. Amen? It's never comfortable to talk to somebody about their need of salvation. But, oh, neighbor, I still believe it's profitable to talk to people about their need of salvation. This man was willing to follow Jesus Christ until Christ made it apparent that it would be an uncomfortable thing to do. We as believers have to make up our minds that we're willing to follow Jesus Christ even if it means being uncomfortable. Even if it means doing some things we don't want to do. We've lost our sense of duty today. Now we just do what we want. We don't do anything because it's expected of us and we don't do anything because it's the right thing to do. Let me tell you something. If you only come to church when you feel like coming to church, you're going to be here about four times a year. I'm being honest now. I mean, I love the church. I love God's people. I, I love, but, I, but I'm going to be honest enough with you, too, to tell you that the devil whispers in my ear come Sunday morning, just like he does in your ear Sunday morning. It's amazing. It could be 90 degrees outside, Brother Ralph, and it'd be 40 degrees in my bedroom, and it would be a cool 72 under my blanket every Sunday morning. I don't even know how the devil does it. No, we don't do it because it's comfortable. We do it because it's the right thing to do. We're a disciple. We're a disciple. You're not, listen, I, I don't even believe, and I'm not trying to be rude or ugly. I was blessed. Me and Brother Larry was talking about, I was looking at the financial report. I mean, God's blessed us. God's been good to us. I'm not saying this because giving's down, because giving ain't down, giving's up. But let me tell you something. If you're not giving till it hurts, you're not giving enough. You see, God's not interested in your wallet. God's interested in your heart. He knows where most uh, Baptists keep their hearts, amen. I know you've heard uh, many times, one brother told it from the pulpit here, but you probably forgot it, amen. If you forgot my sermon from this morning, you probably forgot this joke, so I'll go ahead and tell it again. I uh, told about the man that was shot in the whole armor of God, and the devil decided that he was going to destroy him, and he was going to afflict him. And so he, he came to him, and he, he shot a fiery dart, tried to hit him in the head, but he couldn't hit him in the head because he had the helmet of salvation on. He said, well, I'll shoot him in the heart, and that'll do it. And he shot it as 
heart, but he hit the breastplate of righteousness. Couldn't do that. He decided, I'm going to shoot him in kind of the midsection, uh, but he couldn't hurt him there because he was girt about with the loin of truth. He decided he was uh, going to come along and hit him someplace that was exposed, but he couldn't hit him there because he had the shield of faith. He decided, well, maybe I can cripple him. And he tried to shoot him in the foot, but he was shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I mean, glory to God. So he went around back, shot him in the wallet, and he died. That's where most of us are at. That's where we hurt the most. God, you can have my time, but you stay away from my bank account. God, you can have me. Listen, I come to church house, but you better stay away from my bank account. God, help us. God's liable to take it away from us, you know it? Make an idol out of it. I mean, listen, it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes to serve Jesus Christ, but we ought to follow Him uh, even when there's no comfort. We ought to follow Him without comfort, Brother Ralph. But listen, I'm, I'm going to try to be careful with how I say this. We ought to follow Him without question. Now, don't misunderstand me. I've spent my fair share of time asking God why. I'm not saying, friend, that, that there's not times that I wonder, and you go through the Bible, you'll find people that wonder and ask why. I'm not saying it always makes sense. But let me tell you something. There's a difference between thoughts and actions. Am I right? Sometimes you think things, but you don't say them. Some of you, somebody walked through the door today, and you thought, my goodness, she, she must be blind when she woke up. Look at the way she's dressed, or look at his hair. I mean, But thankfully, you didn't say that to nobody. At least I don't think so, because we didn't have no bloody noses this morning. Uh, a lot better than last week, wasn't it, Brother Al? But, uh, you know, uh, we have thoughts, and then we have actions. And let me tell you something. There might be a lot of things run through your mind. There might be a lot of things go through your mind. The devil might afflict your mind and bring a lot of things that pass before your psyche. But at the end of the day, we ought to make up our mind that whether we understand God or not, we're still going to follow Him. If you had a God you could figure out, you wouldn't have much of a God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we have to make up our mind that whether it makes sense or not, we're still going to follow Jesus Christ. You see, I'll tell you what concerned this man. And, and, and you know, I don't know. I, maybe this is a little bit of sanctified imagination. Uh, but we know that, that the Lord didn't sleep under the stars, right? I mean, I'm sure there were times when He did. But He didn't do that all the time. He had friends. There were people in ministry. And there was different people that he would stay with. And, you know, I kind of think this young man might have known this. It was not so much that there might be a night or two spent out under the stars, Brother Ralph. He could have coped with the comfort. He just couldn't cope with the question of where he would be led to. Where is this going to take me? Where am I going to wind up? A lot of times we don't want to follow God. We don't want to really give our life to Him because we don't trust Him with it. We're afraid He's going to mess it up. We're afraid he's going to make a mistake. It'd be his first. It'd be his first. If he messed up your life, it'd be his first. Never messed one up before. And I, I got news for you, friend. He ain't going to mess yours up. His ways are perfect. Shall the judge of all the earth not do right? He's always going to do right. We ought to follow him without comfort and without question. But listen, now this is going to hurt a lot of us. We ought to follow him without complaint. And I know the psalmist poured his complaint out unto the Lord. And I'm thankful we got a friend that sticketh closer to a brother uh, than a brother. And I'm thankful that there is a throne room of grace we can go to. And I'm going to be honest. I've spent, my, I've spent hours pouting on the Lord. I'm not saying I never have, Brother Ralph, but I'm, I'm saying this. There is a difference. There is a difference between asking the Lord, why is this so? And blaming the Lord for it being so. 
What do you think the children of Israel were doing when they were murmuring? All through the book of Numbers, you find they were murmuring, murmuring, murmuring. I tell you, the more I read the Bible, the more I'm convinced that Baptists go a lot farther back than we give them credit for. Because they were murmuring and murmuring and murmuring. What were they doing? They were not asking God why. They were not asking what the situation was. They were not imploring God to give them direction or guidance. They were merely expressing their displeasure with what God was doing in their life. There's a lot of people that are never going to move any further because they always think they've got it worse than everybody else. They'll follow God, but they're going to gripe and moan about it the whole way. Don't misunderstand me. We all have our moments, every single one of us. But we ought to make up our mind that even if we can't figure it out, God's still right. What He's doing is for our good and for His glory. We see that this man was willing to follow But he wanted to be me first when it came to comfort. But then we find a second man, Brother Ralph. This man's different because he did not go to the Lord and ask to follow. No, this man instead, he was called of the Lord. The Bible says, and he said unto another, follow me. Follow me. So this man did not ask for the life of a disciple, but rather the life of a disciple was thrust upon him. I want you to notice what his answer is. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Now, this is probably one of the more controversial passages in the Word of God. Let me tell you why. We can never, we can never come to terms and understanding with what Jesus is saying when he says, Let the dead bury their dead. Let me make a statement, and I think you'll know what I mean. Even if, even if Christ meant what we think He means there, when we have a problem with it, He's still God, it would still be okay. I'm not going to reject any portion of the Word of God just because it's not palatable to my philosophical system. Amen? I, I mean, if, I believe that whosoever will can be saved. Uh, but that's, listen, the idea that God would send men to hell... That's not why. I'm not repulsed at that, and I turn away from Calvinism because I just can't accept that. I I turn away from Calvinism because it is scriptural to believe that whosoever will may be saved. If, if, If God had chosen to send a group of people to hell, He'd still be God. Amen? He'd still be just. He'd still be right. And even if Christ meant here what most of us like to think He meant, He'd still be God. He'd still be compassionate. But there's an understanding of this verse we have to comprehend, too. It was customary with Jews that they would bury the day of the death. And there's a lot of reasons that they would do this, sanitary reasons and and spiritual reasons. But you find this in Luke chapter number 7. Christ comes upon a funeral party of a man that had just died, and they're carrying him out of the city. We know this is true of our Lord and Savior. Now, I understand they took him off the cross uh, and buried him because the Sabbath day was coming on nigh. Uh, But they would have buried him in that moment, in that time. Uh, That's why they were going to break his legs. They were concerned that he needed to die so they could go ahead and bury him. They always buried him that day. Now, you believe what you want about this, but I don't think this man is missing his father's funeral to have this conversation. What this man is saying, he's not saying, Lord, my father has died and I am the only one that's left to go and tend to it. Please let me go before I follow you. 
No, it's, it's supposed, and I believe it's scriptural to think so, uh, that this uh, man's father was not even dead at the time. He was probably very aged, and it would have fallen to this young man uh, to tend to his father and to see his needs and to meet those needs for the rest of his life. What this man is asking, he's not saying, Lord, my father's dead, and I need to go bury him. He's saying, Lord, my father is of old age, and can you not wait till a better and more convenient time in my life for me to be able to go and to follow you? He said, I need to tend to my father father. Now, when Christ says, let the dead bury their dead, he's not saying if your father's dead, you don't need to go bury him. But rather what he's saying is this, you're not going to find a more convenient time to serve Jesus Christ than right now. You see, the first man wanted me first in the matter of comfort, Brother Ralph, but this man, he wanted me first in the matter of convenience. We want it to be convenient. I understand why convenience is a priority to us, because it lends itself to our comfort. You ever known people that would do anything in the world for you, as long as it didn't put them out to do it? You ever known anybody like that? I've known people like that. They'd do anything for you. I mean, if you call them, ask them for $1,000, if they had $10,000, they would give you 1000 I've known people that if you called them, said, I'm broke down all the way across town, would you come and help me? If they was headed that way, they'd help you. But if it was a matter of inconveniencing them in any way, you're just on your own. That's human nature. We like for things to be convenient. But do you know that there will never be a time more appropriate or convenient in your life to serve Jesus Christ than in this very moment? I'm a young man. It, sometimes I don't feel like it, but I really am. <laughs> sometimes I'm starting to not look like it, but I really am. I'm a young man. And I understand the temptation to lean and to rest upon the many years that if Christ should tarry and if God should show mercy, that, that it would be assumed I would have in this life. I, I mean, I, I remember one time I sat down when I first started pastoring here, and I did the math about how many Sundays, if God let me uh, be in ministry for 60 years, Brother Ralph, unbroken, which is a long tenure, I don't care who you are, 60 years is a long time in ministry. If I preached every single week, how many Sundays that there would be? And I figured it up, and there were 3,000 Sundays from that time, roughly 3,000, until if I was to be an 80-something-year-old man and retire. It don't seem so vast when you think about it that way, does it, Brother Ralph? Some of you got checks from the insurance for $3,000. You know it don't go that far. Amen? We think of our life as being so vast. But let me tell you something. You wake up one day, and it's gone. Oh, how many believers have laid on their deathbed and regretted that they didn't take the opportunities they had when they had them? Let me tell you something. Right now, and I say this to the young people, I say it to myself, we better get busy about serving Jesus Christ. It's not going to get more convenient. It's going to get more inconvenient. The devil makes sure of it. You're not going to find a better day than today to start serving God. We see three things about this. Notice the instant of this call. Christ didn't ask his opinion about it. He just called him. You know why that is? Two reasons. One, because this man, by being a believer, already inherently had a call upon his life. But two, because as his Lord and Savior, Christ had the right and authority to ask and to put that call upon his life. I said it earlier, but we don't belong to us. You don't belong to you. I don't belong to me. We sure don't belong to each other. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you got saved, there was a call put on your life to serve God to the greatest of your ability. 
God may never call you into full-time ministry or into public ministry. There's no shame in not being called into public ministry. I believe that the vast work of Christ is done not by preachers, but by laymen. Because there's a lot more laymen than there are preachers. God is using people in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, to do a lot of different things, things we'd never even imagine. When you got saved, God laid stake on your life, and it belongs to Him now. You don't need to wait. I, I've, I've met people like this. They wanted to wait till God called them to do anything. You know, go change the trash. Well, if God calls me to, that's dumb. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but that's dumb. If it needs done, do it. Amen? If it needs done, do it. That attitude don't fly on a public job. Why would it fly when it comes to God's service? One of the greatest blessings to my heart in pastoring Walridge is to look around at a group of people and there's so many of them. They just do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, Brother Ralph. They don't have to be begged. They don't have to be asked. A committee don't have to be put together. They just see a need, and they do it. They accomplish it. That's the attitude and heart of a disciple, is to see a need and to do it. Don't wait for it. Just do it. God's asked you. God's called you. God expects you to serve Him. Don't wait for everything to pan out and to clear up. Listen, I know a lot of young men in ministry that are just waiting for God to come along and throw a door wide open for them to pastor or to be an evangelist or to go to a mission field. And they're going to whittle their life away waiting on their big break. <laughs> I mean, how dumb is that? Waiting, waiting, waiting. Got, got Bible college under their belts at four years, some of them six, some of them eight years. But they're lazy and they won't serve God. And so God's never going to do anything with them. You know who God uses? The man that looks at it and says, I'm just going to do what I can, when I can, to the best of my ability. I'm going to do all I can for Jesus Christ. I'm not going to wait for somebody to come along and pat me on the back or pet me up to do it. I'm just going to do it for the glory of God, for His honor and for His glory. We see the instant of this call, but we see the intensity of this call. I mean, that's a pretty big thing for Christ to say to him, even understanding it the way we do when he said, let the dead bury their dead. Let me tell you something. God asks a lot more of us than the average preacher will admit to his congregation. Can I say that again? I don't know if we really, really grasp it. I'm not saying that because I want amens. I'm just saying I look around. You know, sometimes you look at people, they look like a calf staring in a new gate. They don't know what they're... God expects a lot more of his children than the average preacher will ever tell them. That is the great treason of pulpits today. Is that one of these days we're going to stand before God and there's going to be a lot that He's expected of us that the preacher never would open his Bible to that page and preach. Afraid, fearful, fearful somebody get upset, fearful somebody get cross with them. Listen, I, I, I hope that I'm always a man of God to Walridge Baptist Church that will tell you the truth. That's really what expresses love when you'll be truthful to people. Whether I'll tell you or not, you'll still stand accountable to Jesus Christ for it one day. God help me as a pastor to love you enough to tell you the truth. We find that God, God expected some big things. I'm expecting Him to leave His family. Expected Him to leave His aging father. If you've got parents that are up in years, you know what that would mean. But there's a reason for this intensity. It's because of the importance of it. But go thou and preach. Go thou and preach. What you're called to do is a heavenly calling. There's nothing greater in this world that you could be called to do than to serve Jesus Christ and to share the gospel with others. It's important. The reason we can't recognize and, and rationalize giving these things up for Jesus Christ is because we, really, we don't really value the work that He's called us to do enough. It doesn't mean enough to us, and so we're not willing to give it up.
We just look at it as, oh, I just need to be at church. That's where I go to church. I just need to give because I guess I need to, you know, tie. That's what, well, I guess I need to give track out because this person's asking where I go to church. If we would see the value of what God has called us to do, it wouldn't be as difficult to make the sacrifices that God expects of us. We've got to see that we're impacting people for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are doing our best to salvage and save and safeguard homes and lives and families. We're trying to reach people and rescue them from a life of sin and of damnation. That's important. That's important. The reason the call is intense is because the cause is important. The reason that God has asked so much of us is because there's so much to do. And it's so important. The reason this man did not approach Christ, I believe Christ is trying to drive home to us. This man didn't, didn't, he was in the crowd, Brother Ralph. When the Bible says, and he said to another, it doesn't mean 14 days passed and he went three cities over. It means as he was standing there, here's this fellow that says, Lord, I will follow thee. And here's another fellow that's about to say, Lord, I will follow thee. And here's this poor fellow in the middle. Wonder what he's thinking. I think he's probably thinking about that aged daddy at home. He's thinking about the responsibilities he had. And he was on the fence. And he didn't know if he'd follow. He was on the fence. So Christ looks at him and says, follow me. That man was waiting for a more convenient time. Christ says there's no more convenient time than the present, than the now. No man knoweth what a day may bring forth. You're not promised tomorrow. Jesus is coming back. If we're going to serve Him, we better do it soon. It could, in a moment, and all that we could do for Jesus Christ, finished will be written on it. And we'll have to live through eternity with it, whether we'd really be satisfied with it or not. We see that this man, the first man, wanted to be me first in comfort. The second man wanted to be me first in uh, convenience. Why don't you notice this third man? This third man, he does say, Lord, I will follow thee. Uh, but we find that me first butts in because he says, but let me first. He had a desire to serve God. Let me say this. I believe a lot of people have a desire to serve Jesus Christ. I'm not saying tonight that you have no desire. I'm not saying tonight that you're completely devoid of, a, of an ambition for Jesus Christ. I'm saying there's something holding you back. There's something keeping you from plunging headlong in faith into the cause of Christ. What is it? Well, we see with this man. He said, let me first go home. and Bid farewell. Say goodbye. Let me go see my family. Before I go, it's interesting to me because we find an instance where this actually happened in the Old Testament. I'd never connected it until I was studying for this. But as the old prophet Elijah has come down from the Mount Horeb and he's been conversing with God, he's seen the earthquake, he's seen the fire, he's seen the wind, he's heard the still small voice, and he comes off the mountain renewed and rededicated to the cause of the Lord God Jehovah. The Lord told him to go and to anoint Jehu and to go and to anoint Elisha. And he goes and he's walking through the field and he sees the young man Elisha, and Elisha is plowing with twelve oxen. And Elijah walks by and he takes his mantle and he throws it upon him. He says, follow me. And Elisha says to him, let me first go home and kiss my mother and father and say farewell to them. And listen to what Elijah says to him. There's a lot of debate as to the connotation of what Elijah says. Elijah says, what have I done unto thee? That's what he asks him. That's an interesting question. What have I done unto thee? There's a lot of ways we could understand that, and I'll tell you the way I think he says it. 
He could have said, what have I done unto thee? As if to say, Elijah or Elisha, that's enough. You know what I've done, let's go. But I don't believe that's what he did. Or he could have said, what have I done unto thee? As if to say, uh, you know, Elisha, it's not me, it's God. But I believe what he said unto him is, I believe he said, Elisha, what have I done unto thee? And I believe what he is saying to Elisha is this. He's saying, Elisha, do you not see the importance of what has just taken place in your life? Whatever it was, whatever you believe, it changed Elisha's mind. Because Elisha then takes those twelve oxen and he boils them. There's a few that want in Baptist, Brother Ralph, because we had a deep fried it or something. <laughs> he boils them. And he takes the, the tools, the instruments of plowing, and he breaks them up and he uses them to boil this oxen and he feeds them to those that are there, to the servants that are there. And we could, we could surmise and assume why. It could be they were a long ways from uh, out into the farm, hadn't eaten a lot. We could, we could assume a thousand different things. But the Bible says after that, he goes and he follows Elijah. This was a, a key time in Elisha's life because he made a decision. This young man made a different decision. Would it have been wrong for Elisha to go and to say farewell to his parents? No, probably wouldn't have. But listen to what our Lord says to this young man in Luke chapter number 9. He says, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He does not say, and having turned back. He says, and having looked back. See, this man wanted to serve God, but he couldn't let go of some things in his life. He wanted to be me first in considerations. There were some things he just couldn't let go of. And I believe the danger was that this man in going home would find a warm bed, a loving set of parents. See, this man had not and was not willing to forsake the old life, and to pursue into the ministry of Jesus Christ. We read it again this morning, and it just jumped out at me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And we just read over it like it don't mean anything, but it says, Behold, all things become new. Behold, all things become new. Something you can look at, something you can see in a person's life. This young man said, I'm not ready just yet. I want to go home and say goodbye to some things. Let me tell you what's keep, kept some of you. God's dealt with some of you about sin in your life. But instead of leaving it right there, you went home to it one more time to say goodbye to it. God's dealt with some things in your life. But instead of slaying the oxen and cutting up the implementation and the plow... You've wanted to go back home to say bye to it. And you know what happened? You went back home and you never came back. Some of you, God has brought you to the brink of submission. But there within the tiny flicker of your self-will, you have somehow fanned a flame that has stood resolute against the will of God. We find that there were three things this man needed to do. I want you to notice them very quickly. First off, we understand that this man, if he was going to serve Jesus Christ, he had to be willing to forsake his old life. 
you've got to understand that the passions and the ambitions of this world mean nothing in the cause of Christ. And you have to be willing to be satisfied in the truth that you may never achieve anything of worldly significance. But if you can live with a heavenly purpose, it'll make a difference. Secondly, he had to be faithful. He had to put his hand to the plow. But the Bible says you can't look back. You've got to be faithful. It's tempting sometimes. I think about the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, and they can almost feel the heat of the horse's breath of the Egyptians beating upon their neck. It was the first time in all of their lives that they had been out of bondage and into liberty. And it wasn't long before some of them were saying, let's just go back. Let's just go back. Some of you have taken steps in this past year for Jesus Christ, but the devil's been on your case and he said, why don't you turn back? Why don't you turn back? Let me tell you the danger in looking back is that we love what's behind us. God's going to ask you to give some things up in your life sometimes that you love. We kind of think that God's going to make everything uh, in our life that we have to give up bitter to us so that it's easy. That's not always the case. There's times God calls us to give up things that we love, things that we desire. And sin has a way of becoming sweet even when it is bitter. You know it? There's some things we love that we know are wrong. We've got to be willing to turn from those things and to not look back. And then finally, he had to be willing to focus on the line. Part of it was what he was looking towards. But part of it was what he was turning away from. See, if you're going to plow straight, you've got to keep focused. And any of you, and I'd say there's not a whole lot in here, but any of you that have ever done any kind of plowing uh, with an animal, or I, I don't know, maybe you get out there with your rototiller, you know it's not, it's not that difficult to get headed the wrong direction. They say there's two ways. And I, I have my opinion as to which is true. Some people say the way to plow the right line is to keep your eyes on the line itself. Every time I've mowed, that's never worked. Amen. If I keep my eye on the line, I wind up halfway in the yard. They say a better way is to pick a point and a destination somewhere far off. And to focus your eyes on it. See, you're, you're, not, you're not focusing on the work. You're focusing on the destination. The reason he was unfit for the kingdom of God was not because God is, is unkind or cruel. We have a jealous God, and there's nothing wrong with us having a jealous God, Brother Ralph. It don't matter whether my puny intellect can, can, can take that and swallow it and be happy with it or not. He's still a jealous God. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not as much that God's a jealous God and He doesn't want us looking anywhere else. It's that you can't plow right unless you keep your focus right. You can't serve God unless you keep your eyes on the Savior. You get your eyes off Him and start looking back. At what's behind you, you'll have your line all the way out into another field. Some people won't serve God because there's just some things they don't want to let go of. And you might say, well, preacher, I know if I let go of it, I'm just going to go back to it. It'd be better to have lived a few days completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. You hearing me? It'd be better to live just a few days completely surrendered to Jesus Christ than to stand accountable one day and to have never plunged off into discipleship for Him. Yeah, you, you're going to mess up, just like I do. 
if the prerequisite for us serving God was perfection, God wouldn't have any servants. You're going to mess up just like I mess up. But you know what you do when, when that happens? You back up to where you went wrong and you start plowing again. You don't leave the plow in the middle of the field. That's the problem with some of us. We've got a plow sitting in the middle of the field where we walked off and left it. You just back up to where you went wrong and get it right. Start plowing again. What tonight has God spoken to you about? I don't even know how to give an invitation for this. But I believe God has done some work in our hearts tonight. And we've got a choice now that we're going to make. We are standing at the the peak of decision right now, just as these three men were. To our knowledge, these three men left. But we do not know that. What will your history say? What will your life say? As you stand at the crest of decision right now, are you going to say, Lord, I will, but me first? Or are you going to say, Lord, I'll give you everything tonight? And I may fail you tomorrow, but to the best of my ability and day by day, I'm going to try to give you every part of my life and I'm going to try to serve you to the best of my ability. I believe that's where it starts tonight. I believe we've got to put our hand to the plow.